on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and some of the things I say on the podcast may or may not represent the views of my employer. Hey Sally, you are in holiday mode. Look at you. You look like you've got your your winter active wear on. You've been out in the countryside. Did you go camping? Did you pitch a tent or did you glamp it? We glamped it in that we stayed in a house. So I guess there's actually no... No camping involved. We were just in a little cottage out in the mountains uh, in the Yarra Valley in Victoria. It was so beautiful. Just with my partner and our daughter, we went on some beautiful bushwalks. Someone recommended driving along Black Spur Drive. Being like, yeah, it's a beautiful drive, amazing trees, beautiful sights. Uh, And so we were like, yeah, sounds amazing. Let's do that. But then sort of two minutes in realised that, what it is actually is like this sort of winding road and both my partner and my, our daughter get car sick. <laughs> and so Kate's driving and was just like, oh, my God, and there's like all these people banked up behind us being like, oh, God, this is the worst, this is the worst. So we were like trying to take in the scenery while also just being like this was a terrible idea. <laughs> and being trapped between cars. So it's like being on a roller coaster. You just can't get off at the point of your choosing. It was just like being in a roller coaster. And I kept saying, like, wow, look at that huge fern. Or gosh, look, there must have been a fire through this area before. And Kate and our daughter were just like, mm mm, mm mm, <laughs> not looking at anything. <laughs> well, I hope you got out there without having to use the sick bags. Yeah, we did. We, we made it. Thank God. And, you know, congratulations to our listeners who've come to the on the job podcast and you know have already been told a story of almost coming to sick bags and how are you Francis? Yeah I'm not too bad it's been a a good week in my world interesting times that we're living in at the moment once again back in lockdown for everyone listening in New South Wales and Sydney in particular it's very very difficult and uh, my mind gets thrown back to how hard it was for all those workers Sally who have been and are in work that's uh, insecure work no entitlements no sick pay no holiday pay the sort of things we talk about a lot, but they come to the fore at the moment because we know that a lot of those hospitality workers and people who work uh, in those casualised, insecure work are in those gigs where predominantly they're social settings. I mean, that's the whole point of a nightclub or a, a restaurant or a gym or any of those environments where those workers usually find themselves is because people want to get together. And the one weapon we have in lieu of an effective vaccination strategy, which we don't have and still don't have, is to stay away from each other. So that means that they do not get to work. And so without JobKeeper and JobSeeker being at the level they were last year after Australian unions and workers fought really hard to force this government to take on those payments to keep people uh, in their financial nose above the water, their menial payment they get now is not enough for so many people. And that means people are really struggling at the moment. I'm keenly aware of that. You know, it's it's so hard here in Melbourne seeing, you know, our friends over in Sydney really going through the same rotten experience that Melbourne went through, not only last year, but, you know, a couple of weeks back, the same problems with workers being stood down and not having any sort of financial supplement. And, you know, the little pockets of spread in Sydney, you know, it's mimicking a lot of the same things in Melbourne, which was 
unless people are paid to stay home or unless people have their income supplemented so that they can stay home, people who don't have a financial safety net are going to have to go to work. They're going to have to leave the house. And it's really frustrating and also just really devastating to see it's like the same playbook. Jess Browning, I spoke to you earlier. Now, Jess is one of the digital organisers with Hospo Voice, uh, one of the unions that looks after hospitality workers. And I thought I'd just check in with her about what she's hearing from uh, her members and the workers about just how this particular lockdown in Sydney and without the, the JobKeeper supplements is impacting on workers at the moment. This is what she had to say. It's really tough. I mean, working in the last lockdown, even with JobKeeper and the increase to JobSeeker, we're doing it tough. And, you know, this time around, people have no savings left to fall back on. The very limited government support is completely inadequate and people have already taken money out of their super, which, you know, was a terrible way to deal with it in the first place. So, yeah, it's, it's really hard. I think there's a lot of people calling in favours. I've heard about workers that are you know, having to move in with their family and who are, like, really afraid about, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to support themselves. Jess Browning there from Hospo Voice talking to me uh, a couple of days ago about the story she's hearing, Sally, from workers in the hospitality industry in insecure work who are really finding that this particular lockdown is biting hard. And the other aspect to it is as well that this might not be the last one. And that's the great fear that this approach to dealing with the pandemic is necessary while we have not got uh, vaccination levels up to a level that we can feel confident it's not going to cause enormous and and catastrophic health implications for people. So lockdowns are only real way when things get into the critical red zone to try and curb the disease. And it's happening in Sydney this week. It might happen somewhere else in Australia later in the month. It could happen back here in Melbourne again. Uh, And the same dynamic will play out for those in insecure work once more until we have effective vaccination program that gives every Australian the opportunity to uh, be vaccinated from this disease. Yeah, that's right. And like in an ideal world, the vaccine rollout would have been as successful and as, what was it, top of the queue or front of the queue or what, you know, whatever that spin out of Morrison and Frydenberg from the beginning of the year. Like if it was the case that our vaccination program had been successful and we were at like 70, 80 percent vaccinated by now, then like maybe it would make a little more sense that JobKeeper had ended because we wouldn't be driven into these lockdowns. But gosh, it's peculiar that JobKeeper's had a a hard expiration date. Oh, it's a 12-month expiration date. But the the deadline on vaccines keeps being pushed out, pushed out. It's not a race. It's a horizon. There's one thing about the horizon. You never reach the bloody horizon. It's always in front of you. (laughs) That is, by definition, like you necessarily, unless you're Jim Carrey in the Truman Show, you never actually reach. <laughs> Tap on the glass with Ed yeah. Harris saying, "Oh, we finally, <laughs> we finally reached vaccination." The first time you watched that movie, Francis, the Truman Show, did you have a moment of being like, "Oh my God, am I like 
the main character of some elaborate reality TV show or was it just me because I was a child when I watched it? No, I definitely did. And I found it incredibly moving and sad at the end. Like, you know, Mm. just found it really poignant and sort of it really got to me. Brilliant film. It probably hasn't aged all that well, but absolutely brilliant film. It's always the risk of uh, sort of reflecting on films from – the 90s or early 2000s or, you know, or before being like, oh, God, yeah, I really loved it. But, you know, your rave review comes from a, a different time, yeah, and then you can sort of rewatch it and be like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> what was I think? We were so ignorant. My God, no. Such no. innocent times. We were so innocent. Oh, innocent, ignorant, yeah. Yeah, I'll go with innocent because I think we're good people. Hey, let's move on to uh, talking about our guest this week because this is really exciting. Now, I know that you and I both say we love our jobs. We both love our jobs. We love what we do. But our next guest is telling us, just be careful with that. You know, all that stuff around you, if you really love your job, you'll never work a day in your life because it leads to a condition where you're emotionally dependent on work. And that's unhealthy. Have you ever found yourself in a situation with a job like that, Sally, where you're sort of, you're so committed to what you do that you in the end, think back, oh, this is probably not doing me as a person or as a worker all that much good. Yes, mate. Like my first after-school job that I got at 13 and nine months was at Boost Juice and I ended up staying at Boost Juice for eight years because I was like, well, I guess, I, I guess I'm married to franchising, <laughs> franchising fruit juice. I guess this is me. That's Ruggy done for her life. Yeah, I know the feeling. Well, that's why I love this book. And we had this great conversation with Sarah Jaffe uh, just a week or so ago when she was in London. Her book is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone. She was fascinating to talk to. Let's have a listen to the conversation. Sarah Jaffe with us here on The Job. On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's Francis Leach and Sally Rugg on the job. Now, Sally, sometimes you can love your job too much. Have you had one of those jobs that you just love the work, you love doing what you do, you work the extra hours, you don't want to get paid for it, you don't ask, and then you find out that your job doesn't love you back the same way? I already feel called out (laughs) by this. (laughs) Because you know that I do. You know that this is who I am in my bones. You know that I have never been able to separate my people are like work work life balance and I'm like, but work is my life. I mean I have other parts of my life, but just sort of like, what do you mean? So, yes, Francis, I have loved a job too much. I have too. And uh, it, while it's good, it's good, but uh, when it's bad, it hurts a lot. In this day and age, we need to take a step back and just realign our relationship with our work. And there's a great new book that does just that. It's written by Sarah Jaffe. She's written a fantastic book called Work Won't Love You Back, which is a shock to you and I, but it's true. That's <laughs> title is so brutal. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And Sarah is uh, in London as we speak, enjoying an English summer, but she's been good enough to join us on the job early on a London morning. Hey, Sarah, how are you going? Good morning. I guess it's not morning for y'all. No, it's in the evening, but we're so glad to have you. It's just like self-help for the two of us because we're <laughs> quite frightened at the idea that work won't love us back, but you've clearly come to terms with that idea. Sort of. I mean, I am, you know, doing this podcast at 8 a.m. my time and going like, oh, right, morning, work, I'm awake. <laughs> it, it was totally also self-help for me and I still 
all the time have to like write myself notes and reminders and just like, Sarah, what are you doing? Sarah, what are you doing? But like, I thought that if you do what you love, you never have to work a day in your life. Is that not, is that not real, Sarah? (laughs) Yeah, that's propaganda being sold to us by a company that makes money renting out offices to hapless freelancers like me. (laughs) Um, So your listeners won't be able to see it, but in the background over here behind me, you can see these tote bags that we made, that my publisher, bless them, made that say work won't love you back in the sort of do what you love we work font because I'm just so tired of all of that. So we work, eat your heart out. So this is really useful to the boss, right? To, to tell everybody that if you love your job, it's not really work. It's great. And when it's not really work, then we don't have to pay you for it, right? And this is like the long history of what people often refer to as unskilled labor, right? Is telling people it's not really work. It's the long history of women's work in the home, which is not really work. And so therefore definitely doesn't need to be compensated. Um, it's the long history. It's a current history of like Uber drivers, right? Who aren't paid for the time when they have the app on. They're only paid for literally the time when they have a fare in the car. So there's all sorts of things where we convince people that what they're doing isn't really work and therefore they don't have to be paid for it. What do we learn from the pandemic in terms of what did that lay bare about what work really is and what we really value? One of the oh weirdest God. things I've, I've found mm. and was watching the NHS workers in the UK being clapped. Yeah. Every Thursday night, the people in England would stand outside the house and, and clap the NHS mm-hmm. workers. And I, my instinct yeah. always was, can't we just give them a pay rise and more holidays? Because you can't <laughs> live off people's applause. But that's the way yeah. that it was dealt with. It was like – In some ways, they were supposed to have emotional Mm -hmm. sustenance and that was supposed to be enough. It was very odd, Sarah. And when the government did get around to talking about a pay rise, they offered them a 1% pay rise, which is just insulting, right? So now healthcare workers here are organizing to demand more because they're like, come on, guys, we just literally went through hell for you and are still going through hell because now we've got the Delta variant bouncing around over here and people are still getting sick. So it's interesting. And like, look, it's nice to have people clap. It's nice to have, you know, signs in people's windows saying, thank you, NHS workers. Like there is something about sort of upping the cultural appreciation for working class people and what they do, right? But when that's supposed to be a substitute for actual living wages and time off, which I'm sure healthcare workers all need right now, right, is a massive vacation, that we sort of don't offer really anymore. And so what's happened, right, is this idea that like, oh, your your job is its own reward has sort of substituted for the traditional rewards of labor, which, you know, no less a man than Adam Smith, father of capitalism or whatever we want to call him, like, you know, said the sweets of labor altogether exist in the recompense of labor, essentially that like labor is good because you get paid for it. So that bit, that's not Marx, that's Adam Smith. <laughs> you know, this is this is a very old uh, understanding that people don't work because we really love it and we're just bored and we need to find something meaningful to do with our days. We work because we have to pay the bills. And I suppose when Adam Smith was going on about it, the, that payment <laughs> um, that you would receive for your labor would be sort of worth more, right? Like you you could probably well, work an ordinary for, job and be able to buy a house is what I'm thinking about. Or I mean, yeah, for, for you know, the good old days of Adam Smith were, um, you know, the days of the 12-hour work week. And uh, God, I don't actually, I'm like looking up his birthdays now to be like, how, how long was it? Yeah. So he was writing in the mid 1700s, you know, 
oh, I'm sure he owned a house because he was an economist and a philosopher and a blah, 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 blah. You know, he was studying social philosophy at Oxford. But the people that were actually working in wage labor were not actually having that great a time, right? He was, that was like the peak of the dark satanic mills and such like, right? So he was not actually practicing what he preached necessarily. But this understanding back then was a lot clearer that people were not doing wage labor because it was fun, right? You couldn't say that when you were going to be, you know, a 12-year-old child was locked up in a cotton mill, getting their fingers cut off by looms and whatnot. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a lot harder back then, right? It was even harder in like this sort of middle of the last century when the majority of people are working in a factory and like nobody sort of assumes that you go to work in, in a car factory, say, because you love cars and you're just like, yeah, I really wanted to like work in an assembly line all day, right? But now that that kind of work is decreasing in countries like Australia and the US and the UK and what's filling in the gaps is that healthcare work, is service work, it's restaurant work, which everybody is all up in arms about not being able to get enough restaurant workers right now. That's actually sort of the backbone of, of the working class part of the economy right now. And so that comes with a different set of sort of motivations and the way we discuss it is different. And it's partly because it sort of uses a different part of you, right? To work in a restaurant to serve customers is, is a very different kind of work than being on an assembly line all day. And both are difficult in their own ways and both are sort of mind numbing and torturous in their own ways. But one of them sort of expects you to like school your face into a smile, no matter what awful thing some customer says to you or does to you. And one of them, you, you don't have to smile at the assembly line, right? You don't have to like wave at the car as it goes by. You just have to do whatever part of your assembly of the assembly is your job. And this is what emotional labor is, right? Like that is the Marxist mm -hmm. definition of emotional yeah. labor. And I mention that because a real pet peeve of mine is, and the listeners have seen this move into sort of the, the vernacular, people using the term emotional labor to describe being nice to their friends or like having to listen yeah. to someone's problems or, you know, support yeah. a family member through a hard time. Like that's not emotional labor. That is, yeah. that is, care that's caring for people yeah. and like yeah, yeah it can be emotional emotionally taxing but it's not yeah like emotional labor is like a very specific experience yeah. that you've just described of workers right. having to compartmentalize mm -hmm. their emotions so that yeah. they can perform their labor yeah and like look there's certainly some compartmentalizing of our emotions that we do when we're dealing with like a family crisis or a friend who's sort of really going through it and you have to sort of just listen to them go on for a long time like look i'm a person who you know my father died and recent years and I definitely was not like my friendships were a bit one-sided while I was sort of picking myself up off the floor. But there's a difference between that and like when I was working in restaurants, which I did for the better part of 10 years of my life, I had to go in and I had to smile. And if some customer wanted me to talk about my, you know, oh, are you a student? What are you going to school for? All of that. Then I had to smile and tell them what they wanted to hear or tell them a lie that sounded like what they wanted to hear. Um, if a customer was incredibly rude to me and yelled at me about how bad the food was, I had to smile and say, I'm so sorry, I'll get you another one, right? And if a customer grabbed my leg under the table, I had to smile and get away as quickly as I could without offending the person who just sexually assaulted me, right? So, you know, that's a difference. And the thing about it, when Arlie Russell Hochschild, who's the Marxist feminist sociologist who wrote, came up with this term, she 
explained it as producing an emotional state in someone else. So the reason I have to smile at the customer in the restaurant is because the customer has to be happy so that the customer will come back to the restaurant. And I was an American waitress, so that meant I survived off tips. And so I really needed the customer to be happy because they had to tip me because that was basically the only way I got paid. The American tipped minimum wage is still $2.13 an hour, which is insane and has been the same since I worked in restaurants. And I started working in restaurants in 1996. So the point of emotional labor as a work category is that it's, it's work that you do to produce emotions in someone else. Can I ask you about what you write about in the book in relation to how the disrupted mm. economy has become normalised in a way that people now expect to work in an environment where they're constantly changing jobs or their job might disappear mm-hmm. overnight and how that yeah. takes a huge toll on people when it comes to their relationship with work. How do we push mm. back against that and, and reclaim work as not being a disruptive force in our life but just a, a means of actually navigating the world yeah. you know, in a way that gives us some sort of dignity and comfort. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that that's really interesting and that workers are starting to catch up with in their organizing is the way that like having a smartphone, again, there's a lot of different kinds of work for which like having a smartphone is a requirement and which like you might get work calls or feel the sort of compulsion to turn the app on and do the work at all times of day, right? Like whether I'm you know, I'm a freelance journalist and right now I'm in one country and a lot of my work is in another country and their time zones cross and here are things, right? I'm talking to you in Australia at the beginning of my day and the end of yours. And so I have to sort of figure out ways to enforce my hours so that I don't just keep working until midnight. For a lot of people, that's harder because I'm a freelancer, you know, in a relatively decent situation at this point. I've published two books and I, I have a little bit of an easier time drawing boundaries. And when I just got started, I was working a day job and I was freelancing and I was hustling all the time, trying to get myself to a point where I could do what I do now. And that is just, it's an exhausting expectation, right? But, you know, again, if you're driving for Uber, this thing is always in your pocket and you know that if you turn it on, you could be working, you could be making some money and you can never quite let it go. You're never quite off the clock. So one of the things that like Uber drivers are organizing around, right, is the right to be paid for all the time that the app is on. So that when you turn it on, you are on the clock. That's a shift. And you get paid for waiting time or for the time, right? If you get a fare on one side of town and then the next one is like, you know, 10 blocks away and you have to sit in traffic for those 10 blocks to go get to the person, you should get paid for that time because you're still working. And on the other end, in, in my industry, the journalist at the New Yorker magazine, who just had a very long and somewhat dramatic union struggle to get their first contract for their union, one of the things that they bargained over was time. Again, was saying that we understand that sometimes we'll have to work late to, you know, on a production schedule to get the magazine out on time, but we need to get that time back at another time. So we should be able to, if I work on the night before the magazine comes out, the copy editors are working till midnight, they should be able to take a half day the next week or something, right? They need to get compensated for that time. So there's an understanding that people's time that they can devote to work is not just sort of infinitely expanding. I mean, this is literally <laughs> Marx's chapter on the working day in capital. It's like one of the number one struggles is that the boss will always try to expand your working day to get more out of each individual worker. 
So that's productivity. That's the way it's framed these days, isn't it? Yeah, well, exactly. And I did this interview the other day with a lovely young reporter who was asking me about the way people talk about burnout these days and was like, is toxic productivity a better term? And I was like, well, there's just kind of no non-toxic productivity at this point, right? Like we're setting the planet on fire. I mean, I'm talking to, to folks in Australia. I know you guys are, are very, very aware of the, uh, the downsides of the climate crisis in recent years, right? literally our productivity is killing us as people individually and also like killing the planet like kind of all productivity is toxic at this point right it's interesting that you talk about that ever expending work day and the fact that mm-hmm. if, unless we have boundaries around it it could be a 24/7 job which is yeah. the mm-hmm. nightmare for most of us there have been some yeah. attempts to legislatively deal with this and have it in uh, enterprise bargaining agreements so in Victoria in Australia yeah. the Victorian police force have now included in their EBA their enterprise bargaining agreement the right to disconnect the right to be off the clock the right mm-hmm. to turn their phone off at a certain point because yeah. you can imagine first responders police are you know if they get called at night by a senior officer, they're going to respond. They're not going to say no. And that's had a huge burden. Do you believe in the power of sort of legislative processes to to have the the right to disconnect or or is it going to have to be taken back by workers, agreement by agreement, fight by fight? I mean, I think both of those are going to be necessary, right? That like you can, like the New Yorker workers did, right? Like bargain it into your contract, the right to disconnect. And then also I think the French government was talking about, or at least some People in France were talking about trying to make this a law because, you know, the French are are very, you know, historically protective of their work week. And so I absolutely think that like putting this in the law is a great idea if we can get there. In a lot of places, I think workforces will get there first by doing it through bargaining. But then for a lot of people who are still, you know, not in unions and don't actually have those protections, putting in in law is a great idea. We have to sort of attack the thing from all sides, I think, right? You know, I'm talking about this as a freelancer and I am a member of the, you know, Freelance Solidarity Project, but like that doesn't give me a bargained contract with everybody that I work for. So I have to sort of do it myself while also writing about it and advocating for it and organizing and supporting the organizing of people like the folks at The New Yorker who are you know, bargaining for it in their explicit contract, because it really is, you know, this is our time. This is, this is our lives as I quote Selma James in the book saying, right? Like our time is our, that's all we got, (laughs) you know? And so giving it all away to the boss is just something we should really struggle against. Um, Another thing that I'm thinking about is like, the Amazon workers in several places in the US who've sort of walked out on strike against the mega cycle is what they call it, which is like a 10 hour overnight warehouse shift, which just sounds like, you know, my idea of hell. And of course, again, they just want to sort of keep expanding the shift until you get anywhere. Or there's an interesting law in a couple of places in the US. I went to Emeryville, California to report on this, and this was in the for retail workers, they passed a sort of retail workers bill of rights. And one of the things that they regulated was on call shifts so that you have to get compensated if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to keep workers on call, you actually have to pay them. And they actually had to be paid if they were being sent home early once they'd sort of gone into work, because this is notorious in in retail, right? It's like, you know, you'll come in for your shift and then it'll be slow. And the the first thing they do is, you know, tell you to go home. But if you're counting on that money, 
so that the law actually requires them to pay people for the time that they're sent home to make it less profitable to basically jerk people around with their time. So stuff like that, you know, I think it's becoming more and more both a subject of bargaining and a subject of legislation. If there are people listening listening along today who, like me, might be thinking, I think I love my job too much. I think my job is not loving me back. What are some telltale signs that our listeners <laughs> can look out for and kind of check themselves on? Do you have like a sort of fast fire yeah. of, of things to look out for? I mean, I, I, you know, I think, I think it's a job is the first guarantee that it won't love you back, right? This is just the reality of it. It's, you know, you're working. So therefore you're getting exploited. But like the things that people really talk about, one thing that I'm just absolutely stuck on is when your boss starts telling you it's a family. Oh, run. Can't hate. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that is the, yeah, it just, the last you know. thing you hear before you're asked to come in on your weekend or forgo exactly. some of your benefits because it would cost the company too much money or Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're all a family here. We're all really working hard to, to, you know, to survive. Like that's just my number one, like, oh my God, what the hell? And it was so interesting to me too, because like I expected to hear that in like the service industry or again, in the kinds of jobs where you are expected to do that kind of emotional labor in caring jobs. I didn't expect it to be so prevalent in tech, but it is so prevalent in tech that like, companies even sort of write it into their branding. So when I was talking to the video games workers here in London, who are members of the games workers branch of the independent workers of Great Britain, all of these companies are like, oh, we do a home-cooked meal. And this one company even calls itself a fampany. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right? And of course, I found out about the fampany because it had fired one of the leaders of the game workers union. So. Fampany sounds like a, a disease. Oh, I think it sounds like a rude word. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I know. I do too. I definitely feel like a little icky saying it. I'm like, oh. But it's such a direct way to disempower people. You, If you say that we're yeah. a family, if you want to actually assert your boundaries and what you want from your job, and as uh, Sarah yeah. writes in the book and we've been talking about, not have to be emotionally connected in a way you're expected to. It doesn't mean you're not a good worker. But if you do that in a fampening environment, you are seen to be <laughs> – Stop saying it. <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying it. You are seen to be somehow uh, not on the team and mm. therefore it almost becomes a loyalty right, exactly. test. It's a, it's a power move of the highest order. I may or may yeah. not know a company that encourages the use of the word frolic because they're not what? just your colleague, they're your friend, they're your oh frolic. Frolic. That's so gross. <laughs> anyway. Ew. Yeah, no, but that there, company? There's a, nobody can nobody knows. Nobody Couldn't knows. Nobody knows. Couldn't tell you. Yeah. So there there's a reason though that I start the book out talking about the family, right? I, I start the book out talking with the unpaid work done in the home, which is still, you know, to this day done mostly by women. And there's a reason for that, right? Is is this is work that is undervalued, that is not seen as work at all, and that you're supposed to do out of love. This is sort of the original labors of love, right? Or taking care of children and keeping the house clean and cooking and, and all of the work that is done in the home, which, you know, when you're a single person like me, you just have no excuse and you have to do it for yourself or else you just, you know, live in a pit. But at least there's nobody who's, you know, nobody yells at me when I haven't cleaned my room. <laughs> there's nobody else that I'm cleaning up after anymore. But like that, that whole 
sort of mobilization of the emotions of the family to try to sort of compel loyalty to a company, right, is in a way an acknowledgement that, yeah, the family is also a place where work happens. And these are complicated questions, right? We don't want to think of, of doing work for our family and for our friends. We want to think, as you were saying, we want to think that this isn't emotional labor. This is just caring about people. But like the challenge that, you know, and again, the challenge very often produced by the 21st century economy is that a lot of the things we do out of love are also work. You literally write that like home care is one of the fastest growing jobs in a lot of the world. And that is work that is done by paid people now, largely because it used to be done by unpaid family members. And those unpaid family members now are more likely to be doing wage labor themselves. So now we've got this whole field of paid work that is essentially doing a thing that we otherwise assumed would be done by the family. And so these are the challenging questions of sort of work in this period of time and why I think it was so necessary to start sort of pulling out this question of like the work that's done for love, not because there are easy answers, right? This is like absolutely necessary work. And also like, you're not a bad person if you like your job. I'm not saying that you're like silly and deluded. Like I like my job. The first words in this book are literally, I love my work, right? Like, but it is to make us like think about how hard we've been sold this idea that some things are just like rewards in themselves to do and who actually benefits from that. Sarah, how do we start the change? Reading the book, you talk about something that I'm a little bit obsessed with is the, the notion of uh, working class needs to shift. And the traditional notion of working class is someone working mm-hmm. in a factory static environment, you know, maybe being able to be organised a bit better because of that. And it, it is a very you know, different and maybe 20th century idea of what working class is. But you write a, a different designation about what working class people yeah. are these days. And it stretches across a whole range and raft of industries that might yeah. not even see that they are interconnected. Yeah, I think one of the things that's happened in a lot of places, again, is is the sort of proletarianization of professional jobs. So like one of my flatmates here is in academia and, you know, we've sort of talked about like, right, like the odds of getting full-time work as an academic have just plummeted. And instead you've got people sort of doing, you know, work by the class as temporary workers, essentially. In the US we call them adjuncts. I don't know if that actually carries over to Australia. You know, you get a couple thousand dollars a semester per class and you have to cobble together a living out of that. And when you're not teaching as well, you know, during the summer break, you need to find somewhere to make some money. Right. And this is this is again one of those things where you're sort of like the Uber driver, right? You're literally only getting paid for the time you're spending in the classroom and all the rest of the work that goes into teaching a class, all of the prep work, all of the grading, all of that stuff, you don't technically get paid for. Um, And so this is, you know, this is what's happening to people who have advanced degrees that we used to think that if you got a PhD, you were like set for life and you were going to get that sweet job that, you know, Stanley Aronowitz famously called the last good job in America. And now the last good job in America is 72% done by part-timers. And so this is a real challenge to people's notions of themselves, right? Like Yasmin Nair called it class shock, where you think that you've sort of done all the things to get the upward mobility to be safe. And then you get there and you find out that you're just as precarious as you were when you were waiting tables. And so that is, it's quite an experience, but it also hopefully can lend itself to solidarity, to understanding that like, 
the things that are being done to Uber drivers are also being done to professors just in a different context, but similar ways of peeling back any responsibility that the institution has to support you and pay for your needs and pay you for your time fairly. Just to finish, what's the reaction to the book been? I certainly felt reading it that it resonated with me. The issues in it were were really prescient and uh, it felt like you were articulating an experience of work that many people have, but haven't really been able to put all of those pieces together to have a clear understanding of how work has changed and what work means to them. Have you had that reaction from a lot of people? Yeah. I mean, it's been out in the world since January now, and I've had a lot of conversations, which have been great. And it's been fun to sort of, you know, do conversations with unions who are organizing the kinds of workers that I'm writing about, and then do conversations with like, I've done a couple of podcasts that are sort of aimed at like career women and talking about this stuff in in those contexts. So it's really interesting how like different people are looking at it and going like, oh, this is the stuff that that resonated with me. This is the stuff that challenged me. Hopefully it has something to challenge everyone. But it's been really interesting. Like Amazon, which I definitely have written an article calling for it to be nationalized, chose it as one of its best business books of the year, which I just was like really I found that really funny because I don't think I wrote a business book, but I guess I did. And Amazon, I'm like, I still think we should nationalize you, Amazon. I'm sorry. I appreciate the promoting of my book, though. (laughs) But I'm still coming for you, and I hope Jeff Bezos gets stuck in space. So, (laughs) you know, it's it's real. It's real. The struggle is real. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to find out sort of where this book lands for people and how it gets interpreted and sort of yeah, sort of get spread and communicated about and people find it interesting in, in a bunch of different ways. We certainly do. It uh, certainly resonated with me. We thank you very much for being with us on the job and enjoy your London summer day, Sarah. Thank you. Have a good rest of your evening. Thanks for coming. Bye. Sarah Jaffe there. Her book is called Work Won't Love You Back and uh, it's published by Hearst. Uh, it's available online uh, and all good bookstores, hopefully in Australia. You've, have you got a publisher for Australia yet, Sarah, for this one? So I, I do believe that Hearst is doing distribution in Australia. We'll find it well, where yeah. people can get it, but it, it is available in Australia, I'm pretty sure. So we mm-hmm. look forward yeah. to being able to get into people's hands. And thank you for being on the job. Thank you. Sarah Jaffe there. Her book is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone. And, uh, yeah, she's got some strident views on, on how we need to just have a little bit of critical distance from our work. Whenever they say, oh, you're part of the family, uh, head for the exit, Sally. That's, that is alarm bells. Hey, do you know who this week or a week ago, quite recently, gave quite an, a, a passionate takedown of the concept of work-life balance and and said that work and life should actually just be a circle. Do you know who that was? No. Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Was he taking the piss? (laughs) No, he was like, well, you know, work-life balance and separating the two, like, that's a dangerous myth and actually you should consider work as your life. And so you should consider it instead as a circle. And you know what? Like this is probably why he has managed to hoard that much wealth. (laughs) I'm going to put him in his Um, rocket ship and fire it into the sun. It's the sort of work-life balance he needs. As a joke, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe he said that without any sense of I know. It was quite funny to sort of like, mate, of course you would say that. 
People listening definitely do not take that guy's advice, but I think Sarah Jaffe <laughs> certainly did have some uh, really good nuggets of wisdom in there and also was a bit of a call out for many of us. <laughs> Indeed it was. Have a great uh, a great week, Sally. Good to talk to you again. Uh, I'm glad you had a great you holiday. Too, mate. Um, you can follow uh, Sally at Sally Rugg on the Twitter, and I'm at Saint mm-hmm. Frankly. And we love your reviews, so go to your platform and give us a review so people can find us and share the information and inspiration. And uh, don't forget, if you are in insecure work or casualised work, and you want a better way of working and living, don't listen to Jeff Bezos. Just go to australianunions.org.au and join the bloody union. That's the best and quickest way you can change your circumstance, not listening to that geek. (laughs) That's right. Hey, um, have a good week, everybody. See you, Sally. Bye. 